My name is Mohsen Alatar. I'm an associate professor at the University of Warwick School of Law, and this is my podcast on international economic law. So, as I was saying, capitalist economies are planned. That planning takes place in a variety of ways. We plan the economies in large part to deal with this massive information that we have and the complexity of the problems and by restricting then the possibilities it makes it easier then to plan um, and someday um, many of you perhaps all of you will end up being parents and you'll see that you will ultimately plan how you raise your children so I recall when my daughter was much younger I would say to her you can choose between this outfit and that outfit why would I do that? Because I needed to get her to school at a certain time. And if I said, hey, go crazy, dress in any which way you please, well then she would just play around with it for too long. And so we would lose some efficiency in that manner. Not only that, she would be dressed like a clown and I couldn't have that. <laughs> now, she'll hate, she'll listen to this and then she'll say, I can't believe you said that. Um, <laughs> you actually think my daughter listens to my podcast? <laughs> So, contrast this with the liberal position. Liberals say that the solution to market complexity is ultimately to liberate market forces. And ultimately, those market forces will achieve efficiency on their own. Nobody is going to invest in a particular type of technology if it isn't in demand. Well, let us consider this through the lens of an example. How do you curb pollution. Is it by creating a market in CO2 emissions, as is taking place in some jurisdictions, where now, effectively, you are trading chits, pollution chits. So, I buy, you for example have, being the size of a company, you have 100 chits available to you, and you have 1,000. Well, you're not actually using your 100 because of the type of industry that you're in or maybe you've invested in renewable energy so you have those 100 so you turn to them and say you want more so why don't you buy my 100 in terms of the pollution load the pollution load remains the same and in fact now we've created more dynamism within the market well that's one rationale and that's one approach that's been adopted do you do it the way the Germans did you incentivize investment public-private partnerships, investment by establishing targets, and then incentivizing the pursuit of those targets. That is another way. A third way, as we see with vehicles, prohibit high emissions. There are limits on the type of cars that can be produced based upon the amount of emissions that they produce. So notice then three different approaches towards dealing with pollution. And all of those involve the market in some way or another. Because this is, we do live in a capitalist era. There is a capitalist system in place. But that capitalist system is not black and white. There are a variety of shades in between. Now, what I am speaking to you about, limiting then the choices, there is a term within the literature that captures it. It is what we call bounded rationality. 
bounded rationality. So rationality, and we are creating a boundary around it. Now, there are two ways in which rationality is bounded. One is passive, and the other is active. Now, the passive one has to do with the limits of our knowledge. Think of the limits of your knowledge personally, and think of the limits of, your, of our knowledge collectively. Should you buy shares in Apple, or should you buy shares in Samsung? Should you buy shares in Royal Mail? Many of you are thinking, presumably, I don't know. Some of you are probably thinking, I don't even know how to buy shares. Limits of your knowledge. Now, what did we say before about liberalism last week? Self-interest. Self-interest is what we want to facilitate. Choice is what we want to facilitate. Because ultimately, you as a rational actor who is pursuing your own self-interest will make the decision that is right for you. But that is contingent on you having the necessary information. If you don't have the necessary information, then how can you make the rational choice? You'll be guided by something other than rationality. So the limits of your knowledge, the limits of our collective knowledge, there's a phrase by, some of you may have heard of this person, Donald Rumsfeld, um, as one of my uh, journalist friends refers to him as, a war pig from the United States. Donald Rumsfeld was the one who said that what they wanted to do with Iraq when they invaded was bomb them into, not the Middle Ages, he said we have to go further back than that, bomb them into the Stone Ages. And there was one line that Rumsfeld has said that demonstrated shrewdness and that demonstrated on some level brilliance. And he was referring to what we call terrorists, or what he calls terrorists, not we, he. And what did he say? He said that there are the known knowns, there are the known unknowns, and there are the unknown unknowns. And he was pilloried for that at the time. People are saying, what an imbecile. But consider it for a second. There are the known knowns. There are the things that we know. Your knowledge then about legal theory. You know enough about legal theory to know that there's a lot more to learn. And so if you had to write an essay about legal theory, you know where to begin, you know where to carry out your research, and you know how to produce that essay, the known knowns. But then there are the known unknowns. And this will give you an example. I recall proctoring an exam, and I was watching one of the students cheat. I could see them because I was there. But they didn't know that I could see them. A known unknown. You don't think I know, but I do. And this is what we try to prohibit in relation to insider trading. Information that people have that others do not, and we say we do not want any transactions taking place with that information because that distorts the decisions. It distorts the market. A known unknown. But then you have the unknown unknowns. Who here is willing to wager? I'll take a wager now. What is going to happen with Brexit on the 29th of March? 
can you predict? You can speculate, <laughs> you can guesstimate, but did anyone predict that things were going to play out the way they have? The unknown unknowns. There's information that we don't have. And yet we still have to make decisions. So <clears throat> I am trying to decide, do I sell my flat? Do I hold my flat? No, 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 don't sell now. Terrible time to sell. Okay, is the price going to go down in between now and later this year? Is it going to remain stable? Is it going to go up? Anyone here want to take a guess? Go down. Others? Depends what happens with Brexit. Others? Who the hell knows? So how do I make a decision? What is the rational choice? What is best for me? Unknown unknowns. That is passive bounded rationality. My rationality is bounded by the limits of my knowledge. But then we also have a second type, active bounded rationality. And this is where we put in place regulations that limit what the options are. That in itself helps with the calculation of risks. <clears throat> Am I going to invest in renewable energy? Well, the costs are really high. Well, there's an incentive that's been created by the German government that runs for seven years. Okay, they're going to do this for seven years. Let me run this through my spreadsheet with the incentive that has been, that is available. Can I turn a profit? Okay, well, they're telling me what they're going to be doing for the next seven years. So now I know there is an intervention in the market by the government. Now return to what I said at the outset. International economic law is itself devised to regulate global capitalism. So what we are interested then are these interventions and interferences in the global economy. How do we restrict choices? How do we open borders? How do we pursue all of these at the global level? And of course, what impact does this have on the domestic? Now this brings us then to part three of today's session. With part three, we are looking primarily at Max Weber. Max Weber, sociologist who wrote about the relationship between law and capitalism. And the article that I assigned to you was the one by David Trubeck, a legal scholar who was critiquing the work of Max Weber. Max Weber begins with a question. Why did capitalism, this accumulationist based system that I've described, this system that deifies the market as being the best mechanism for the distribution of resources? Why did this economic system emerge in Europe, not elsewhere? This isn't to say that elsewhere we're limited to a subsistence-based economy, not at all. <clears throat> but there are particularities to capitalism that were only prevalent in Europe. Now, this is a vital question 
largely because capitalism, as we know, has been globalized, has been universalized. There are pockets of resistance, but truly these are pockets and we operate within a capitalist global economy. And with this capitalist global economy, there is an accompanying legal system known as international economic law. Now, Weber began with the features of European law and said these features of European law were conducive to the emergence of a capitalist system. So chicken or the egg were the features of European society what gave rise to capitalism and the attendant legal system. So these are cultural features or was the establishment of capitalist relations what ultimately produced the European society we have today? Well, this is what Weber set out to investigate. Now, Weber associated law with organized coercion. Organized coercion. Now, he qualifies it by saying organized because he's saying that law possesses a certain legitimacy. <clears throat> law possesses a certain rationality. That is why it is organized. Now, when it comes to the legitimacy, it elicits obedience. So if I were to turn to you now and say, take that jumper off, his response would likely be no. Because he does not see this instruction from me as compulsory, as obligatory. But if a police officer were to walk in now and say, you come with me, he gets up and goes. Because they have what he regards, not him specifically, I just mean all of us here, as authority. We recognize the legitimacy of the authority of the police because they are an ex extension of the executive branch. Now that ends up being the difference. It's not just law is coercion, that is too simplistic. Law is organized coercion, and by organized we mean there is legitimacy associated with it. It elicits obedience, we regard it as authoritative, and then at the same time, when he says organized, he means that it has rationality. Rationality does not mean that it is right. We're not saying any law that is adopted by the state is the right law, not at all. He's saying merely that we have constructed a system that allows for the formulation of laws, the propagation of these laws, and the application of these laws. And whether you agree with the laws in the UK or not, we acknowledge there's a system by which laws are enacted, there's a system by which they are disseminated, and there's a system by which they are executed. It's there. Are there laws outside of this? They're not laws. They're something else. Now, just so we're clear, 
there's a theory underpinning that claim. And that theory is known as positivism. And we'll come to that a little later. So Weber says that law is organized coercion. It is a legitimate, rational, normative order. Legitimate, rational, normative order. And it is one that is distinct from others. Now consider this distinction. Many of you, potentially all of you, belong to a family. And within your family, there are certain norms. There are certain norms. I recall one instance where, this happened a short while ago, I was in Cairo with some of my cousins. We were at their place and one of my cousins goes in to the kitchen and prepares a big bowl of pomegranate, roman as we refer to it. Big bowl of pomegranate. Anyone here peeled a pomegranate before? It is not easy. It takes time. And this big bowl probably took him the better part of an hour to prepare. And he came out and he sat down in front of a football match with a spoon and started digging in. And the rest of us turned to him and were like, whoa, Yadagel, what are you doing? And he's like, oh, what? <laughs> Sitting right here. The expectation from us was that he prepared this big bowl. All of us are going to enjoy this big bowl. And then begrudgingly, he gets up and goes to the kitchen and gets a series of little bowls and scoops some out for all of us. The norm in operation within a family is very different from the norm that is in operation within a state. But a state does have norms, laws, that dictate how we relate to one another. There are other sites in which norms guide our behavior, but this is the point that Weber was making. The nation-state treats its law, its laws, as superior, as supreme to all those other ones. Now, I gave you a silly example involving myself and my cousins. But let's consider another one. Some of you are religious. Many of you will have heard of the Vatican. The Vatican has its laws. We turn to canon law. The Vatican has its government. The Vatican has its courts. Now, individuals who practice Catholicism, that specific strand of Catholicism that acknowledges the Pope then as God's representative on earth and that recognizes the legitimacy, the rationality, the authority then of these ecclesiastical courts who feel bound then by these rules. How do those rules relate to the nation-state's rules? 
Is it possible for a Catholic walking the streets of London to say that conflicts with my beliefs and I refuse to abide by that? Well, let me give you a concrete example. A friend of mine, she's from Poland. She's Catholic. She was married. She got a divorce. She wanted to remarry. Can she remarry? Many of you are shaking your head no, and the answer is yes, of course she can. But she's remarrying within the state system. It is a civil marriage. But she wanted to remarry within the Catholic Church. Now, how could she remarry within the Catholic Church? She had gotten the divorce. The divorce was recognized. The divorce is there. Can she remarry? State says, yeah, sure, go ahead. Here, we've got a justice of the peace. You can bring a priest but not a Catholic priest. And a Catholic priest would not remarry her, why? Any Catholics in the room? A correction, I take that back. I did not ask that question. <laughs> Delete that question. <laughs> I'll answer it myself. <laughs> so, can she remarry within the Catholic Church? The answer is no, because she got a divorce. So the only way that she could remarry within the Catholic Church was by having her previous marriage annulled. And she came to see me because she was the fiancé of a good friend of mine and they were the ones getting married and he says, can you help me get her previous marriage annulled? And my answer was no, because she doesn't meet the grounds. And anyone here who has studied family law knows that divorce and annulment are very different. And the grounds for getting it annulled is, I'm marrying you, and I think I'm marrying you, and you have the veil on, and then it goes and it turns out I'm marrying you. <gasps> Shock horror, I married the wrong person. You know okay, that's grounds to get a marriage annulled. It vitiates consent entirely. But we didn't get along and we ultimately ended things, that is not grounds for the annulment. They asked me, can I get it annulled? And the answer was no. And then they spoke to his uncle, who was a priest within the Catholic Church, and he says, here is what you're going to say to the priests. And they prepared, and she got the annulment, and they got married. These are two different normative orders. Now, which one ultimately trumps the other? Or are they on par? Now, this is what Weber examines. And Weber examines it and he says that ultimately the nation-state-based system must be superior and within Europe was regarded as superior. Within Europe, we see the split between the religious and the state. And there was the development within Europe of a rational legal system. Now the rational legal system itself was built around a series of abstract propositions. What freedom means. The right to ownership. The right to transact. The right to contract. All of these things are abstract propositions. Why is the age of consent set at 16? 
or 18? Why is criminal liability set at 10 or 8 or 6 depending on jurisdiction? These are normative choices that are made by societies. They're made in the abstract. And as I said to you, what we are looking for within that system is coherence and consistency. And it is a rational system, not just because it is coherent and consistent. It is a rational system because there is a method by which I can create new laws within Islam where the primary legal sources are the Quran, which is the Word of God, and the Sunnah, which is the prophetic traditions, a prophet who was alive during 700 Common Era, where you have these two bodies as being the basis of your legal system, how then do you make new laws? Well, all those new laws must be informed by these two bodies. There's no other way. You are bound in that manner. Which means that ultimately, if you decide <coughs> that one of the provisions within the Islamic system is undesirable for whatever reason, you are effectively subverting the Word of God. Why was my friend unwilling just to remarry within the state? She could have gotten married if she wanted. She didn't need to go through all of the stress, the strife, the drama associated with presenting things to a bunch of male priests begging them to allow her to marry again. But she's a Catholic, and the law protects her freedom of religion. But it's not about the law protecting her freedom of religion. It's her own belief in that system as a dominant normative order. Second time my voice cracked. <laughs> We're coming to that mark. <laughs> it is that dominant normative order to her. So turn around and tell a Muslim, yeah, disregard the word of God. Chances are... The reaction is roughly the same. I can't do that. That is the dominant normative order to me.